0: Our preaching passage this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, and I will begin in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Please be seated.
1: Well, good morning. I bring you greetings from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. We're actually a church plant and have existed for about eight months now. We would covet your prayers in the months and years to come that we would be a bright, uh, vibrant gospel witness there in the capital city of Virginia. Uh, also, just I don't, I don't want to be distracting to you all as I'm preaching, so I'll just go ahead and sort of acknowledge the elephant in the room. Uh, I have a broken hand, so you're going to be seeing this splint. Uh, i Suffered that broken hand in a minor car accident a couple weeks ago. Um, I was the only person injured, very grateful to the Lord, uh, but this is uh, pretty useless. so just bear with me as i as I try to preach uh, i 'm also honored to be here on this particular Sunday uh, because This is Outreach Sunday, one of your Outreach Sundays this fall. And it's such an honor to be at a church that I've for so long loved and respected from afar, and particularly to be thinking with you about not just what it means to get the gospel right, but what it means to get the gospel out. But in order to get the gospel out, we have to first make sure that we see ourselves rightly situated in that grand story. In other words, in order to be prepared to share the story of salvation, you have to know your own personal story of salvation. Christians have a word for this. If you've been in church for most of your life, you know it's the word testimony. And, and even that word, I know, evokes different kinds of feelings. Maybe, maybe some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Others of you, though, are kind of known among your friends for your testimony because you have a, a pretty amazing, radical story of God's miraculous, transforming work in your life. Praise Him. Others of you, though, have a bit of an uncomfortable relationship with the word testimony because you don't really remember a day in your life when you didn't know and trust Jesus. But I want to submit to you that even if you feel like you have a bit of an unexciting testimony, that there is no such thing as a boring testimony. In this room, there there is no one who's truly been changed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who has a boring story. Every Christian on the planet has a thrilling testimony, and it happens to be found in one particular chapter of the Bible. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2. As you're making your way there, I'll say a brief word about The context. Uh, The Apostle Paul is likely, as he's writing this, sitting in a Roman prison cell writing to a young church in the ancient city of Ephesus, modern day Turkey. I actually had the chance to visit Ephesus and walk through the ruins earlier this year. Paul is writing to this young church in this commercial, in this commercial center. So this would have been, ancient Ephesus would have been the heart of Roman idolatry. It was home to the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was a happening place. You went to Ephesus in order to make something of yourself, and those who succeeded there had made something of themselves. And Paul has a word for these accomplished, ambitious people who are congregated in this church we just heard the passage read. I want to think with you about three things that we see in the passage. First, what you're saved from, what you're saved by, and what you're saved for. What you're saved from, we'll see that in verses 1 to 3. What you're saved by, verses 4 to 7. And what you're saved for, verses 8 to 10. By, from, by, and for. First of all, what you're saved from. In verses 1 to 3, Paul is making eye contact with the Ephesian believers, and he is making eye contact with us here this morning in issuing what is perhaps the most devastating description of the human condition in all the Bible— Verse 1, listen to it again. And you were dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This graphic description of life before Jesus, life without Jesus, resonates deeply with some of you. You hear these words. You you can almost see and smell your old life. Others of you, though, when it comes to verses 1 to 3, it kind of feels like you're reading a biography of someone else. I mean, you've never been outwardly rebellious. As I said earlier, you can't remember a day when you didn't know Jesus. And that may be true, that you can't remember a day when you don't, didn't know Jesus. But when Paul says, you were dead, he is not referring to just Christians who have radical testimonies. He wasn't just referring to a special class of people with obviously evil pasts. No, the word he uses for you is plural. He's looking at these Ephesian believers and saying, all of you were dead. He's looking at you, college church, and saying, all of you were dead in sin. Left to ourselves, friend, left to ourselves, there is not a single person in this room who evades this indictment. There's not a single person in this room who doesn't fit the description, the mugshot of verses 1 to 3. And it's even more devastating than it might appear because Paul doesn't merely say, and you were spiritually sick. Or, and you were drowning. Either of those would have been terrible enough, but he says, and you were dead. Dead. No euphemisms, no understatements. That's your spiritual condition apart from God's intervening grace. A few years ago, I was watching a formal debate between two pastors. They were debating the topic of God's sovereignty in salvation. And one of the pastors was objecting, saying to the other guy, uh, Your God just acts unilaterally. Uh, if, if, if that's how God is, if he's completely sovereign in salvation, then that makes us into mere puppets. No, we're not puppets. We are dancers. We're participating in a dance that God himself has initiated. To which the pastor responded, that's really compelling. I, I would love nothing more than to dance with God. But there's just one problem cadavers don't dance dead people don't dance that wasn't a clever pastor that was a pastor who had read and absorbed ephesians chapter 2. in this spiritual lifelessness spiritual unresponsiveness it wasn't this passive thing because though we were dead to god we were very much alive to sin look at how paul describes this deadness of heart verse 2 very these are action verbs verse 2 you were walking you were following again you were following verse 3 you were carrying out your desires in other words you me all of us we were rebels willing rebels against heaven's throne. Now, there's different kinds of rebellion. There's obviously the kind of irreligious, secular way to rebel against God, but you can also rebel against God in a very religious, moral, upstanding, church-going way. And Paul's saying, we were all a part of it, all marching in lockstep in this insurrection against heaven's throne. Imagine a prisoner of war or a slave shackled in chains and suddenly discovering or being handed a a screwdriver or some kind of tool that that gives them a a glimmer of hope that they could free themselves. And and so they they take it and and they, they get to work. And in the name of freedom, they tighten and tighten and tighten their shackles. That slave, however absurd that word picture may seem, that slave was you and me. And what were we shackled to? Paul tells us three things, the course of this world, the passions of our flesh, and the prince of the power of the air. The world, the flesh, and the devil voluntary slaves to all three. If you've never turned from your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you've never bowed your knee to Him in faith as your King, then then you are many things. I mean, some of the things that are true about you are, are good. I mean, not least of which is the fact that you are made in the likeness and the image of God, and therefore you bear eternal, infinite dignity and worth. But one thing that you are not is free. You may fancy yourself to be a free person, to to be marching to the beat of your own drum, to be the the captain of your fate, to be following your heart. You, You may fancy yourself free, but you're not. The world promises even through all of its mantras of self-discovery and self-expression and self-actualization, which, by the way, all have the same root word, self, 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 that you are chained to something. Now, the the world won't say that. The world will, will, will make you think that the things that you think can satisfy you will, when in reality, you know from experience. That's not the case. So wh- whether, it's your, whether you're chained to your past, your regrets, or to your accomplishments and, y- and your goals and your dreams, you are all chained to something. It may promise to free you. The thing may appear to free you, but it can never free you. As one friend of mine observed, the largest religion in the world to which humans are chained is not the tyranny of Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam or even Christianity. That's not the largest religion in the world. The largest religion is selfism. And there's a worship service going on 24-7 at a mirror near you. And it will drive you into the ground. When you live for yourself, even in the context of a church, when you live for yourself, It'll shackle you and crush you. Well, what's the result? What is the result of our bondage to self? Verse three, we were by nature children of wrath. Children of wrath. I wonder if some of you hear that verdict that you're a child of wrath and just feel, you just kind of feel like it's a bit over the top. I mean, yeah, I'm not perfect. I, I know I make mistakes, but overall, compared to others in my life, I, I, I'm pretty good. I, 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 the, the idea that, that I'm a child of wrath, yes, I have things to work on, but the idea in and, and hell, I hear college church talk about hell. Maybe, maybe you've been a part of this church for years, and it's just you have a hard time squaring, looking in the eye with the fact that human beings deserve, who, who, who are lost, deserve an eternity of punishment for a few decades of sin. Maybe you've just always been troubled by that. Maybe that f- feels, frankly, unjust, like it's a cosmic divine overreaction on God's part. The punishment exceeds the crime. But, oh, friend. I want to tell you on the authority of God's word and in love that the punishment of hell does not exceed the crime of sin, it fits it. And the reason, the reason that hell is an infinite sentence, is because it's punishing an infinite crime. And the reason sin is an infinite crime is because it is committed against an infinite God. As one old Puritan said, there are no little sins because there is no little God. You have never once in your life committed a small sin because you've never once offended a small God. This is our bleak, hopeless condition. Our state of utter ruin apart from God's intervening, interrupting grace. But praise him that Ephesians 2 isn't only three verses long. And that's point number two, what you're saved by. Look there at verse four, but God, but God. Have you ever thought about the fact that your entire destiny hangs on those two little words? Your life, verses one to three, and then all of a sudden, but God. But God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, who was the main character of verses 1, 2, and 3? We were. Verses 1, 2, and 3 is a mirror and we're staring at ourselves, but who is now the main character in Paul's flow of of thought? It's God. While we were busy tightening our shackles, the king of heaven arrived to shatter them, and he does three things according to these verses. He makes us alive, he raises us up, and he seats us on high. Now, what does this mean that he's He raises us and he seats us on high. I mean, it doesn't feel like we're in the heavenly places. No offense, but I don't see any glorified bodies in here. I see people seated in pews, not seated in the heavenly places. So what is Paul talking about? Well, the key is to understand the word he attaches to the beginning of each of these phrases. It's a little word that means together with. Together with. We don't regenerate ourselves, raise ourselves, seed ourselves, and we don't get regenerated and get raised and get seated alone. It happens when we are united together with someone else. When we're united with another once dead person. Dead, not because of his sins, but because of ours. But that wasn't the end of Jesus' story. God made him alive. God raised him up, and God seated him in the heavenly places at the very right hand of the Father. And you, believer, if you are trusting in Jesus, if you're united to Jesus, if you're hidden in Jesus, then you too can be found in him. You have been made alive and raised and seated in authority together with Him. Well, all this should leave us staggering in wonder. And if we really understand the majestic supremacy and majesty of God, and we really understand how deep the abyss of verses 1 to 3 is, that we happily were born into and swam in apart from his grace before he showed up, then we will be asking, well, why? Why did a holy and righteous God intervene and reroute my trajectory and change my story? Why is there a verse 4 in Ephesians 2, and why is there a verse 4 in my own life? Well, verse 7 gives the answer. Here's why. So that Always pay attention to words like that in your Bible. So that means you're, you're about to hear the first purpose statement in the chapter. God did all of this so that, verse 7, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We sang earlier about God being rich in mercy. The only thing the Bible calls God rich in is mercy. That is in no way to belittle or denigrate his other attributes. But the authors of the Bible go out of their way to say, hey, you, you want to know he, what he is rich in, what he is generous with? It is with this attribute, mercy, mercy. Did you notice how Paul seems to just kind of be scrambling to pile up words here? Mercy, verse 4. Love, verse 4. Grace, verse 5. Kindness, verse 7. It's like he's flipping through an ancient thesaurus until it finally sinks into our hearts. God loves rebels. God loves rebels. Those who have made a wreck of their lives, or those who it's not obvious they've made a wreck of their lives. Maybe it seems like they've accomplished everything they set out to do, but they've been living for themselves the whole time. They've functionally turned the Lord's Prayer into, For mine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God loves rebels. He loves irreligious rebels, He loves religious rebels. And he loves invading our lives and, as I said earlier, interrupting our course of destruction, rerouting our trajectory. He loves to reach down into the abyss of verses 1, 2, and 3 and pull us out. And this, by the way, is why we should never apologize for verses 1, 2, and 3. We should never soften or downplay the severity of sin because the moment we do that, we are tampering and obscuring The beauty of gospel grace. If you were to wake up on the 4th of July to a text from a friend that said, Meet me for fireworks at 1 p.m., you would assume there was a typo because no one goes to see fireworks in the noonday sky. The darker the sky, the darker the backdrop, the more brilliant the display. If we minimize verses one to three, then we lose out on the wonder of what comes after. As one another old Puritan said, Till sin be bitter, grace will not be sweet. What you're saved from, what you're saved by, and third and finally, what you're saved for. The default mode of the human heart, if you know yourself at all, you know that even if in your theology, you, you understand that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that it's very easy to subtly succumb to a kind of moralism where, yeah, you may know in your head you, you don't have to do things in order to get right with God, but maybe in order to stay right with God, to, to keep Him pleased enough with you, you, you kind of have to keep being a certain kind of person, doing a certain amount of things in order to stay in his good graces. That's how we're all wired. And therefore, God gives us verses 8 and 9, which are like a bombshell detonated in the midst of our moralism. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. When you've sunk to the bottom of the ocean floor, you don't need swimming lessons. And every other religion is giving, offering some form of swimming lessons. I'm not denying that there are differences between the various religions, I'm just saying it's different swimming techniques. But there was only one person in the middle of history who didn't just shout a different swimming technique from the safety of the boat, but he dove in and submerged himself and went all the way to the bottom as a rescuer to bring corpses alive. Now, when you think about that, when you think that what happened in your story when verse 4 and verses 8 and 9 happen, when God showed up and He submerged and He brought you to the surface, what is the natural response to that? When you experience one-way grace, the natural response to that is not to step out onto the, the sand, you know, onto the shore, and just kind of dry yourself off and start puffing out your chest. I mean, how ridiculous would it be to think about Lazarus strutting his way out of the tomb as if he had done anything? Well, what happened to Lazarus physically is what has happened to you spiritually if you are in Christ. That's why the response to verses 8 and 9 is, quote, "...so that no one may boast." If you in any way think that you're better than others or more deserving of salvation than others, then you have yet to understand Ephesians chapter 2. Some of you need to turn to Jesus for the first time this morning. You may have been in church for decades, but maybe you've been living off the borrowed faith of someone else. Maybe you've been going through the motions. Maybe you've been assuming that you can just kind of make a pile of all your bad deeds and run away from them to a different pile, which is your good deeds. Or maybe you think you can make a pile of all your bad deeds and run away from them to Jesus and your good deeds. But to become a Christian is to make a pile of your bad deeds and a pile of all your good deeds and to run away from them both, to flee both piles into the arms of Jesus. You have to come with empty hands in order to be saved. If any of that sounds new to you, or if it's perhaps the first time that it's really sinking in, that that maybe you are not yet right with a holy God. Maybe you have not yet turned from your sin and trusted him. Then you need to get right with him and talk to someone here. This, This church is filled with people who would love nothing more than to talk to you after the service or to get a text from you later today saying, hey, could we follow up about that sermon? I have a few questions. Well, Paul concludes in verse 10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This verse doesn't make it on as many coffee mugs as the previous two. Uh, when I memorized Ephesians 2 8 and 9 on an index card back in college, verse 10 didn't make it on there. I wasn't as impressed with it. Uh, But this verse is actually the crescendo. This is the grand finale of the fireworks display. And what's the relationship between what can seem disjointed to us, verses 8 and 9, and verse 10? Well, the, the relationship is that you're not saved by good works, but you are saved for them. And only. When your works stop being the basis of your standing before God, can they start to be the fruit of it? Don't come to verse 10, friends, and think that the camera has somehow panned away from God. Like, hey, we were talking about grace and looking at God, and then now it's verse 10 all about me and what I got to do. No, the lens is still on God's hands and what he's created we are not self made people. The word here for workmanship is poema, from which we get the word poem. God has labored over our lives like an artist and is creating something beautiful. And that means that no matter where you come from or how you're doing or how you're feeling, whether you feel this morning like a million bucks or you feel like a piece of junk, you are, you are the craftsmanship of God. This verse should also encourage you because it declares your life has a specific purpose. I mean, so many of us in, in our angst, we want to know in certain seasons of life, especially like, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? Well, here it is, verse 10. And this says your, God's will for your life is to walk in good works, not, not living for your salvation, living from your salvation. Okay, so there's a reason why verse 10 comes after verses 8 and 9, not before but it says that God prepared all these things before for you in advance, which means that he's already gone ahead of you and secured your way. Wherever he is going to deploy you this coming week, whatever difficult situation you're going to walk into, bearing his name and his gospel, that, the, that interaction with that neighbor or that coworker or that person in your family, whoever it may be, you are only going to be walking a path that God has already laid out and prepared. It's one of the things I love about the Great Commission where Jesus gives the most daunting marching orders in human history. He says, hey, here's your task. Go and disciple all the nations of the world. But then he ends with not, and don't blow it. Do your best, make me happy. But the very last thing he says is, oh yeah, one more thing. Go disciple the nations. One last thing. I'm going to come too. Surely I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, if you noticed, is, is this extended series of contrasts before and after. Do you see yourself in the mirror of this whole passage? Before, dead in sin, after, alive in Christ, shackled in bondage, seated in authority, led by Satan, led by the Spirit, child of wrath, child of God, saved, by works, or thinking you can be saved by works, knowing you can only be saved by grace. But the most significant contrast is perhaps not any of those. It's what bookends or frames the passage. Did you notice that verse 10 is echoing verse 1? What does verse 1 say? And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once, what's the verb? Walked. Look down at verse 10. God's preparing good works that we should, what? Walk in them. This is redemption, friends. This is a stunning contrast. Once walking in bondage, now walking in freedom. Once walking in hostility, now walking in love. Once living for self, now living for God. And the difference maker between those two columns, the before and after column in your life, is the one who for 33 years lived out verse 10 without ever succumbing to verses 1 to 3. For 33 years, Jesus Christ walked in good works for those walking in sin. He was not a son of disobedience. He was the eternal son of God, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And on that dark afternoon 2,000 years ago on a hill outside of Jerusalem, he was treated like a child of wrath so that those who have fled from their sin and fled from their righteousness into his arms, the righteous one can be treated like children of God. And his body is no longer hanging on that tree. Sometimes our gospel presentations leave Jesus hanging on the cross. He's not there. And he's not lying in a Middle Eastern tomb. He is seated on a throne. And that is where you are by faith if you're hidden in him. Oh, passages like this are easy to become overly familiar with. And they can lose their wonder. And you know what's really sobering as I conclude It's sobering that that's exactly what happened to the Ephesian church. They received this glorious, soaring statement about God's mercy and grace. And they grew overly familiar with it. They grew bored with it. How do I know? Because in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus has a word for the church in Ephesus. And he says to them, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you can't bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who call themselves an apostles and are not, and found them to be false. In other words, Jesus says, good job. Your commitment to sound doctrine is good. You're people of the truth. You stand for truth. Good job. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. What about you, college church? I know that you affirm the words of Ephesians 2. I know you confess them. And Jesus says, that's wonderful. But he's also asking you, do you still love them? Do you still adore them? Do these words electrify your heart? And to the degree they do, you will be prepared and propelled to go out and share with those who most need to hear. It's a provocative thought, but you realize most unbelievers that you encounter in your daily life have never rejected the gospel. That's because they haven't yet heard it. They've rejected what they think is the gospel, but I guarantee that the vast majority of them would define the gospel as something, some form of moralism. Your job is to instruct their ignorance. Your job is to tell them actually no. It's much better news than what you have rejected. And the biggest obstacle to our evangelism is not the unbelievers. It's easy to blame those out there. The biggest obstacle to our evangelism is even not Satan himself. The biggest obstacle to evangelism is Christians who don't share the gospel. But friends, we have all the resources we need to do so with confidence and joy because we can look into the mirror of a passage like Ephesians 2 and say, if God did this in me, he can do this in anyone. Don't abandon your first love. Believe the truth, yes. Toil for the truth, yes. Defend the truth, yes. But don't forget to adore it, to treasure it, and to proclaim it. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that we are saved by sheer grace, and therefore none of us can boast. We praise you that because Ephesians 2 is our story, if if we are in Christ, then there is no such thing as a boring testimony. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as we go out into the various deployments where you've sent us with your message that we would be bold in sharing the greatest news that people could ever hear.